Hebrews 13. All good things must come to an end, and that includes our study of the book of Hebrews, which we'll finish up today. Nevertheless, these last few verses have some uh, important things to teach us, so uh, here we go. Hebrews 13, picking up with verse 18 down to the end. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the covenant, of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good to do his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. Amen. This passage is a little bit difficult to organize into uh, points to know how to preach it. But I've boiled it down to two things, and verses 18 through 21, and then we'll just comment a bit on the miscellaneous uh, things at the end of the chapter there, some of which we know very little about. So two points. The first is this. Your leaders need your prayer. Your leaders need your prayer. The Roman Catholic Church got a new pope this week, Pope Francis. In his first appearance to bless the crowd at St. Peter's Square, Pope Francis broke with tradition and first asked them to pray for him, bowing low as they did. According to our text this morning, I'm not Roman Catholic, but according to our text this morning, Pope Francis got it right. Your leaders need your prayers. Actually, this whole passage holds the importance of prayer before us. First, the writer asked the people for their prayers in verses 18 and 19. And then he prays for them in that great benediction in verses 20 and 21. Now, this passage of requesting prayer begins with with an interesting comment about having a clear conscience and desiring to live honorably in every way. How does that connect to the uh, request for prayer? Well, perhaps the author is saying that he knows his conscience is clear, but that doesn't mean he has power to do everything, so he needs prayer. That's possibility. More likely, he's explaining that the very pointed, sometimes severe exhortations and warnings which have been written in this book were not an indication of hostility toward them, but only a matter of conscience for him to speak the truth to them no matter what. And let me tell you, if someone loves you that much, enough to say the hard things to you that no one wants to say, he has the right to ask you to pray for him. Paul did the same thing with the Corinthian church, to whom he wrote some of his most severe criticism. 
In 2 Corinthians 1.11, he writes, He will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. But then in the very next verse, and again in chapter 4, he also speaks of his conscience. As you help us by your prayers, and our conscience testifies that we've conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relationship with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And so, in a similar way, the writer of Hebrews asks the Hebrew church to pray for him, as he has tried to minister honorably and with a clear conscience to them. Their leaders need their prayers. Then in verse 19, he specifically asks them to pray that he may be restored to them. Now, now we know nothing about the circumstances of this. It's the kind of thing that we hear the Apostle Paul uh, uh, speak of. Uh, It's probably the concern uh, for Timothy's return that's mentioned down at the end of the chapter, verse 23. This uncertainty about plans and the results and the need to trust God concerning them was everyday business in the first century. The faith was being lived out and was being uh, spread throughout uh, a hostile uh, world. The availability of transportation was uncertain. The threat of hostile attack was great. People were generally just more at the mercy of the elements and uh, of unpredictable circumstances than we are. But such concerns have uh, still not gone away, especially those who travel a lot find those same things. So your leaders need your prayers. Also noteworthy is the thought that this church would pray for his return to them. After repeatedly warning them that their souls are in danger, he still assumes that they are brothers and sisters in Christ who will pray for him and welcome him when he returns. How different from so many Christians and many churches nowadays where even the gentlest word of correction is likely to generate a firestorm of opposition. People determined to kick that leader out and never see his face again. No wonder your leaders need your prayers. Especially if they are to remain faithful with a clear conscience before God. And dear people, the leaders of Wiser Lake Chapel need your prayers too. I need your prayers. Pastors and elders face the same struggles as everyone else. It's a myth that ordination vows make you immune to normal pitfalls and temptations. But there's so much more at stake in regard to the leaders, for if the leaders are unfaithful, the whole church gets wounded. Plus, leaders have other struggles which may be foreign to, some, to other people. The temptation to manipulate God's word to serve some other hidden agenda. The temptation to use the ministry for selfish gain or for self-promotion. The temptation to develop an independent, uh, unaccountable attitude. 
the temptation to turn spiritual ministry into some other kind of activity, a, a sales job promoting your church brand or your theological brand, or a money-making career peddling the Word of God, or an activity director keeping the church programs running, or an entertainment kind of job uh, manipulating the faith to keep everyone happy and hyped up, and, and dozens of other wrong agendas. Your leaders need your prayers. Your leaders need your prayers. But then as this writer turns to pray for this church, he presents it to us in the form of this wonderful benediction of verse 20 and 21, which teaches us a second great truth, and again, the subject of his prayer, and that's this. You need the gospel. You need the gospel. When we pray for one another, when pastors pray for their congregation, too often the whole content of the prayer is no more than requests for healing and comfort, requests for things that we think we need, and requests for happiness instead of hardship. But folks, there are people who have all those things, good health, material wealth, and a life of ease and happiness, but do not know the grace of the gospel, and therefore do not have peace with God and eternal life. Meanwhile, all around the world, there are Christians who live with suffering and ill health every day of their life, who own and earn virtually nothing, but who live in the joy and power and fruitfulness of God's grace revealed in the gospel. So what really do we need? We need the gospel. One of the great distortions in the evangelical world of our day is the notion that the gospel is just the sales pitch that we have to give to unbelievers in the world. Now, it's true that unbelievers need to hear the gospel, but the gospel is also what you and I need to hear. The gospel is all we have. The gospel is our daily only hope as we live in the presence of a holy God. The gospel is what equips us to live every day in this world. And the gospel is what assures us of eternal life with the Father. So when this writer begins to pray for these readers, what does he ask for? Well, he prays that they might know the gospel in their lives. One by one, these verses point out various elements of the gospel message, which they and we need for our daily living. So let me just unpack it item by item. There are about four things I want to mention. First of all, he points us to the God of peace. The peace referred to here is the peace of the gospel, which has been the great theme of this whole book, how God made peace with us through Jesus Christ Peace that we could never have known any other way. This peace with God, which Jesus gives us, is so radical that some people think that the New Testament God of Jesus is a different God than the Old Testament God of the law and condemnation. Now, of course, that's not true. God does not change. But in the gospel, we do see his grace displayed like never before. So that we can read in Romans 5, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And Romans 8 says, what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his Son. You see, we don't need to wonder where we stand before God. For those who rest in Jesus, the war is over. The alienation is dissolved. We are at peace with God. He is for us, not against us. That's the gospel. And our restless, self-condemning hearts desperately need to know a gospel of peace with God because of Jesus. Second, our text reminds us of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We read here that God, through the blood of the covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus. Now, according to 1 Corinthians 15, this is the heart of the gospel. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and was buried And he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and was seen. Now these truths are uncomfortable to people in our day. So there's a temptation to talk about the life and teaching of Jesus and omit his death and resurrection. The bloody religion of the Old Testament and of the cross seems primitive to us. And the notion of a resurrection from the dead seems unscientific to us. But these uncomfortable truths are essential to the gospel. Without Jesus' death on the cross, there's no atonement for sin. There's no satisfaction of the curses of God's covenant that has been broken. So even the teaching of Jesus becomes no more than more law to condemn us even more. And without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, there's no proof that Jesus really was the Son of God. There's no evidence that he actually did atone for our sins. There's no demonstration of any power that can conquer the power of death. So we're left with a martyred Jesus who can't help us who can't give us eternal life or forgive our sins. We need the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's of the essence of our salvation, of our freedom from sin, of our eternal life, that we can can consider ourselves dead to sin because when Jesus died on the cross, he died for us. And we can consider ourselves alive to God Because when Jesus rose from the dead, we were given life with him. We never outgrow this. This is where we live. This is how we live. We need this gospel. The third thing in these verses, we're pointed to Jesus, the good shepherd. We've been reading through Isaiah 53 in recent weeks, and in verse 6 we find... Uh, the gospel encapsulated when it says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And upon whom was our iniquity laid? Well, on the Lord Jesus Christ, we know. That's exactly what Jesus predicted in John chapter 10, we read it. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd The good shepherd gives his life 
for the sheep. The 17th century hymn writer Johann Hermann took note of the irony when he wrote uh, these lines in one of his hymns. What punishment so strange is suffered yonder? The shepherd dies for the sheep who love to wander. So now, because of Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf, all those shepherd promises in the Bible describe what Christ is to us. For example, Psalm 23 now becomes a testimony of Christ Jesus shepherding us. We We could say, Jesus is my shepherd. I shall not want. Jesus leads me. In green pastures and beside still waters. Jesus restores my soul and makes me righteous. Jesus walks with me through the valley of the shadow of death. I'm not afraid, for Jesus comforts me with his rod of protection and his staff of correction. Jesus honors me in the presence of my enemies, sets me apart for his service. My heart overflows with joy. For the love and goodness of Jesus are my daily fare, and he will bring me to, my, to his Father's house, where I will live with him forever. All around us, people are desperate for guidance, for care, for deliverance. The world needs the good news of the gospel They need to know the good shepherd has become the lamb of God to take away our sins. And now God has raised him from the dead to be the shepherd and overseers of our souls. To lead us all our days and bring us to eternal life. There is no one like him. No one cares for your soul like he does. You never stop needing this gospel about the shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. Then the fourth thing here, we're reassured that God will equip us to do his will. Too often we Christians pick up some distorted views of God's plan for us. We come to think that God just saved us to make us comfortable, uh, so we won't have to do the hard work of serving him. Or or other times we believe God has saved us to serve him, but he's kind of left us on our own to figure out how to do that. But this text makes clear that we are saved to serve the Lord and that we need the grace of the gospel to accomplish that. That's the point of verse 21, which teaches that God both equips us with everything good to do as well and works in us what is well-pleasing to him through Jesus Christ. Let me unpack that with three little observations. First of all, the word equip here. The word has a broad range of meaning. It can mean to make complete to put in proper condition, to repair, to restore, to mend. Interestingly, it's the word used of the disciples when they were fishermen, before Jesus called them, where he found them on the shores of Galilee, mending, that's the word, equip, mending their nets. Folks, we need that kind of equipping. That whole broad range of God's mercy at work in us to build us up to completion, to mend our brokenness and restore our souls, and to equip us for tomorrow's work. We need the grace of the gospel. Second observation, the point of that equipping is that we do 
the will of God. We seem to forget this sometimes. We begin to think God has saved us and given us his spirit to make us feel better, to make life easier for us, to give us a leg up on everyone else. No, God is equipping us to live for him, to do his will, to walk in obedience, to pursue holiness and practice godliness. So in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we read that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works. But in the very next verse, we're told we are God's workmanship created by Jesus Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Philip Hughes explained, the new man in Christ is a man restored to the harmonious integrity of his humanity. The creature is redeemed not only to be a new man, but also to do the works that spring from and make manifest his new nature, which means specifically to do God's will. We need the gospel, not just the gospel of deliverance from sin, but the gospel of a whole new life equipped to live for our creator. So third observation, God himself is working that in us. There's an interesting thing here, which is not immediately obvious to us as English readers, but the exact same verb is used for our action in doing the will of God and for God's action in working to work in us what is pleasing to him. Same verb. We do the will of God, and God does in us what is pleasing to him. That's also what the Apostle Paul teaches in Philippians. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Next line. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work of his good pleasure. So who is working this out? We are working it out as God works in us. Hughes again explains this a bit more thoroughly. He says, this doing is not the doing of the creature only, but at the same time the doing of the creator, who is said here to be working or doing in you that which is pleasing in his sight. This is by no means the eclipse of the human will, but on the contrary, its fullness and its perfection. God working in us enables us to work with him and thus perform the purpose of his will. The Christian's service to God, therefore, is not just passive submission, but willing, joyful, cooperative obedience. Thus, in Christ, the lifeline, which connects the creature and the creator in eternal purposes, that lifeline is restored. Or as Jesus illustrated so simply, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. We need the gospel. For apart from the grace of Jesus, we cannot do God's will. Those two great truths. Your leaders need your prayer. We need the gospel. 
In conclusion, then, the book of Hebrews ends with some miscellaneous comments. So let me just comment briefly about them. I love verse 22. The reader calls this book a word of exhortation. That seems to mean that it's like a sermon to be preached with some personal notes at the end. And if that's true, then it's an example of sorts of a sermon. Specifically, he says, it's a brief sermon. And sure enough, this sermon could be read to the church in about an hour. So whenever someone tells me, I mean, sermons need to be short, I'll know what you're talking about. About an hour. Then there are these other personal contact comments in verse 23 and 24. Earlier we mentioned the comment about Timothy. We actually don't know any more about it. He was released from what? We don't know. He will be arriving where? We don't know. And who will come with him? We don't know. And the greeting from the Italians is also very ambiguous. It's not at all certain who they are or where they were as they send their greetings. We just don't know. We see the personal nature of this communication, but we don't have the background information. Finally, in verse 25, we have a blessing which was common in the early church, as it should still be today. But these are not empty words. As we've said before concerning the gospel, it's all we have. We stand in grace, but grace is all we need. So grace be with you as well. Finally, this sermon brings us to the end of our study of Hebrews. It took about a year and a half with some uh, weeks in there that we did other things besides Hebrews. Just to look at the whole book for just a second. The whole book is crucial to our faith, for it unfolds to us the superiority of Christ. From the beginning to the end, it's telling us how Christ is superior. It starts off saying his revelation of God is superior to all the things we heard from the prophets. It doesn't deny those things. It just goes so far beyond that. He is superior to the angels. He is superior to Moses. He is superior to Joshua in giving God's people rest. He is a superior high priest, greater than the Aaronic priest. He is a superior mediator of a superior covenant. He is a superior sacrifice and ministers in a superior temple. And he gathers us before a superior Mount Zion, the heavenly city of God. But coupled with that emphasis on the superiority of Christ, the book of Hebrews also holds before us several severe warnings. Chapter 2, do not neglect the faith and drift away. Chapter 6, do not turn away after tasting of the blessings of Christ. Chapter 10, do not continue to sin after you've come to know the truth. Chapter 12, don't sell your soul like Esau did. And the end of chapter 12, don't refuse to listen to the one who warns you from heaven. This book is about God's covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's profound promises of blessing and it's solemn warnings against unfaithfulness. May God make us more faithful for having studied it together. Amen. Let's pray.